0: We're starting the fifth book of the Torah. Okay. This Shabbos was Shabbat Chazak. We finished the Bar Midbar, the fourth book, and now we're starting a new book, Devarim. And in a certain way, there's something very, very different about this book, because this book, Devarim, in many, many, many instances, is spoken in the first person, where Moshe Rabbeinu refers to himself as I. Not like... Not like, uh, and then Moses spoke, but rather Moshe says, and then I spoke. Because the book of Devarim is what they call Mishneh Torah, a review of the whole Torah. And the review is being held by Moshe Rabbeinu, like a real good teacher. After the teacher gives a shiur, what does he do? Chazara. You do review. You review what you learned. So Moshe Rabbeinu gave a really good shiur, 40 years long. Over the over the matter of forty years, he gave the Jewish people a class. And he told them he taught them kol Torah kula, the whole Torah. And now, in the last month of his life, he begins Chazara. He begins to review, and he goes over many many of the mitzvot that he already taught. In the next in the next uh, ten weeks, he goes over those mitzvot and repeats many of them, reviews the Ten Commandments, reviews many. And he also does something that he has not done before, and that is, uh, he tells the Jewish people what's on his mind, so to speak. He gives them a piece of his mind, and he gives them Musar. He gives them a real admonishment. So, Moshe Rabbeinu, as uh, we're taught in the Rashi. Moshe Rabbeinu, in these next few parashias, in the next few uh, uh, weeks, and then in the last few weeks of the Torah, he's very, very harsh with the Jewish people. And he gives them a lot of admonishment and a lot of rebuke. And he really assails them for all of the bad choices that they had made during his, during his uh, leadership, during the period of his leadership over the last 40 years. And um, he waits now. He does this. He, he really had never indulged in criticizing the Jews before. He did a moment momentary get upset at them, but then quickly ended it. But here it's a sustained campaign of corrective lessons And Rashi Rashi teaches us that we should learn a lesson from here the fact that Moshe waits until he is almost gone before letting loose on the Jewish people. And um, Rashi says that there are four reasons why a person should wait with his harshest criticism, with his children or with his people until right before he dies. And uh, the, the reasons all have to do with, first of all, the criticism being effective. And secondly, the feeling, the emotion following the criticism should be one of love and not one of resentment. And therefore Moshe says, let me wait until I'm almost gone. That way, when I finish my speech, and the Jews will be hurting, because of my criticism, they won't have to face me every day, and be reminded of how disappointed I was with them, because I'll be gone. So they'll be able to get to work on correcting their behavior, instead of defending themselves, which is always, always, the downfall of even a well-intentioned criticism, where instead of taking it to heart and trying to improve, the listener gets defensive. And then you have to try to say, I don't, I don't, I'm not judging you. I don't, it doesn't mean that I don't like you. I love you. And then they get very defensive. Being defensive is exactly the wrong reaction to to a sincere criticism. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, in order to head off any kind of wrong reaction, let me, let me finish up my criticism on the day that I die, so that they'll be free to face their own truth and improve at their own pace. And furthermore, one one more thing which he says, which of course is needs to be a cornerstone of tonight's discussion about criticism. He says, let me do this right before I die. And that way I will avoid repetitive critis- criticism. Repetitive criticism. She lo mochichan mochichan. You shouldn't... Are you repetitive? Criticism. You criticism. You shouldn't... be re- shouldn't... Re- no, I mean, have, he, he should repeat he all should, the time. You are not good. Avoid that. To avoid that. Yeah, avoid that. He said, let me do this at the end of my life and that'll be the greatest guarantee that I will not um, slip into the slippery slope of repetitive criticism. So this idea of Moshe Rabbeinu literally waiting to the last minute to say what's on his mind, which is a risky business, But he does that in order to avoid repetitive criticism, and in order to avoid a defensive reaction. If we only had those two lessons, it would already be enough, and we could close the books and and finish this class and be much better people. Why risky? Because, you know, a person doesn't know when he's gonna die. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know exactly when he's gonna die. So with the fact that he says, okay, let me start talking to them now. Um, You know, what if he dies in the middle and he doesn't get a chance to say everything that he wants to say? But he was willing to risk it in order to avoid these two pitfalls of repetitive criticism and a defensive reaction from the Jewish people. So we'll get back to that right now. Let's get into the first opening words of the Torah when the Torah introduces Moshe Rabbeinu's speech of rebuke, his Divrei Musar, to the Jewish people. So this is the first words of the fifth book of the five books of the Torah. Eile Hadvarim. These are the words. Asher Diber Moshe El Kol Yisrael. That Moses spoke to all of Israel be'ay just over the jordan river literally on the border of israel ba'mitbar in the desert ba'arava in the arava wilderness mol suf opposite the red sea Ben paran uben tofel between paran and tofel ve'lavan ve'hatzarot and next to Lavan and Chatserot, the D-Zahav, and a place called Dizahav. zahav So Rashi immediately comments and he says, what on earth, what, what this sounds like a GPS that's malfunctioned. Be'ever HaYardain is exactly where they were. They were Eever Ayardain. They were on the east bank of the Jordan, on the west, east bank of the Jordan River. But then the Torah says that they were Bamidbar in the desert. They were not in the desert. They were already long out of the desert. The desert is in the south, the Sinai desert. They are not in the desert anymore. they're not in the Arava either. They're not in the wilderness. Mol Suf, next to the Red Sea, they're nowhere near the Red Sea. And then Paran, tofel Lavan, Chatzerod, Di. Chatserot is a place. But Lavan, Dizahav, there's no place. There is no geographic locations with these names. Dizahav is the, the bottom tip of the, of, the, of the Sinai Desert. Dahab. Maybe now, named after this words in the Torah. Yeah. But um, uh, let, me read, let me find the exact words. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi biochan said in the in the Gemara khazarnu al kola mikra we reviewed the entire tanakh wala makom shmo tofel w we have not found any place called tofel and lavan so tofel and lavan for sure don't exist khatero does exist and these I have it interpreted wrongly during the generation listen listen when Rabbi Yochanan says we review the whole Torah, I want to I want to uh, pause and point out something that everybody really needs to think about. You know, Rashi. Everybody talks about Rashi. Rashi lived around eight hundred years ago, okay, something like that. In he lived in France, and uh, Rashi. In Morocco. In Morocco. where's Rambam? Oh. I think. I think we're getting mixed. I also I, was thinking, I, I, maybe I the Rambam, right. I, think. I think. Rambam, Rambam lived in France, in Morocco, e- Egypt. Rambam, you can visit your house. Yeah. So Rashi, I think, lived in France. Anyway, so Rashi, he, when, he opened, when he wrote his commentary, he explained his intention. He said, I am here to only, only explain to you the literal meaning of what the words are saying. I am not, Rashi said, I am not one of those commentaries that is here to teach you a drash, you know, to teach you a, a deeper meaning. I'm not here to teach you a- a- allegory or, or gematria. I'm not here to teach you anything deeper. I only want you to know the simple meaning of what the words, the actual literal meaning of the words, which makes sense because Rashi was a school teacher. So Rashi's teaching. Rashi was teaching the Torah to children And as he explained the children, the simple meaning of the Torah, he wrote it down. Now nothing that Rashi writes is original. Because Rashi can't make up what he thinks the Torah means. Rashi lived 800 years ago. The Torah was given 3,300 years ago. He can't ignore 2,000 years of Jewish scholarship and just decide what he thinks it means. So rather Rashi is quoting, he's extracting from... The, from the Gemara, from Talmud From the Medrash And he is using those commentaries That are the most simple, straightforward explanation Of the words of the Torah And so you'll see, if you study Rashi You'll see that everything that he says He has a source Either in the Gemara Or in the Medrash So what, basically what did Rashi do? Rashi chose and selected the simplest explanations and then wrote them and compiled them in a commentary and we call it Rashi. What what should blow your mind is that Rashi says with all the authority of a great Jewish leader that out of all of the explanations that exist on this given verse, this one is the literal one. This one is what they call pshutosha HaMikra, the simple meaning of the puzzle. So without getting into how does Rashi know which one is Pshutosha Mikha, which is a whole different discussion, what we need to marvel at is the fact that Rashi read and studied all of the commentaries on the Torah. Otherwise, how could he make a selection? In order to make an educated selection, as to which explanation is the simplest, you have to know all the explanations. And Rashi didn't have the benefits that we have today, of everything being digitized, and everything being indexed, and everything being organized. The truth is, what we have today did, did not even exist 10 years ago. Didn't even exist 30 years ago. You know, these websites, Sefaria, and these unbelievable resources on the internet, where you have literally the entire uh, Gemara and the entire Medish, everything at your fingertips. You just have to type. Rashi doesn't have that. He doesn't even have a library organized and indexed. So Rashi is like so typical of the scholars of those days where they, these people had minds like, like um, photographic memories and amazing analytical power. And he knew the whole body of Jewish wisdom and was able to select which one he, he knew was the simplest one. It's amazing. Rashi looks at the Torah, at the whole Torah, Tanakh, Gemara, Medrash, Mishnah, everything. He looks at it literally with a bird's eye view. That's what we call the Rambam. HaNesher HaGadol. Jewish history has a nickname for the Rambam. They call him the Hanesher Ragadol, the Great Eagle. And why? Why you could call him Ari, uh, You could call him the Great Lion. Why do you call him the Great Eagle? Because the Rambam embodied what so many of these great rabbis had, which was this bird's eye view. The whole Torah was spread out beneath them, like like I would have three books open up for me on a on a table. They had the whole Torah open up for them in front of them in their in their in their memories. So that, they, so that you could select and comment based on the whole Torah. And th- many times throughout his commentary, Rashi says, I've reviewed all of the commentaries and I don't find any explanation to this word. Lo matzati lo Chaver bamikra. For, for a, a given word, I think he does this three, four, five times throughout the Torah, where he says, I don't know what the... Lo yadati ma... I don't know what these words mean." And I and I read the whole thing, all the commentary, and I don't find any other word, any explanation for this. If if a man like me would not understand a word, I would go and I would say, okay, let's go find somebody who understands it. Rashi is saying nobody has explained it. I've read it all, I know it all, and nobody has explained it. So obviously it's not it's not Rashi being presumptuous. It's rather an unbelievable grasp of the Torah. And so, we, when we read this word, Rabbi Yochanan says, Rabbi Yochanan says, What is paran and tofel? Amar Rabbi Yochanan, al mikra I studied the whole Torah. I haven't found any place called tofel and lavan. Hmm? Yeah. Anyway, that's all parentheses, just so that we could have a, a proper appreciation for the unbelievable scholarship that has existed throughout Jewish history and that has brought us truly an amazing gift. Anyway, let's get back to the discussion. So where are all these places? So therefore, Rashi explains that the Torah mentions these, mentions these places as if these were the locations that Moses was speaking in when really... These names were not descriptive of where Moshe was when he he spoke these words, but rather these names are remazim, these names are indications of what Moshe wanted to speak about. And how do they imply what Moshe wanted to speak about? So we go one at a time. So so first the Torah says he was standing on the, he was, this happened on the bank of the river, the Jordan River, that's literal. That's where they were. Bamidbar in the desert. They were not in the desert. So why does it say they were in the desert? Because we're trying to hint that Moshe is criticizing the Jewish people as it relates to their behavior in the desert. About all the times that they panicked in the desert and they said, Why did you take us out of Egypt? Lahamitenu bamidbar. Why did you take us out of the out of Egypt just to have us die in the desert? So so Moshe is hinting to their weakness of faith during their sojourn in the de- through the desert. Then he says, "Mulsuf opposite the Red Sea." They were not opposite the Red Sea, but Moshe Rabbeinu is alluding to their misbehavior at the Red Sea that when they arrived at the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was behind them and the sea was in front of them, once again they lost their faith and they panicked and they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt just so that we should be slaughtered here on the seashore? And then he says, paran So Rashi says, he is criticizing them about TOFEL. TOFEL means to complain. Vilavan about the man which was white the man, the Torah said earlier the man looked, had the appearance of white um, small white uh, beans or something like that and the Jewish people complained about it and Moshe Rabbeinu here is telling him how disappointed he is with the fact that they were complaining about the gift that God gave them, and then the next pl- words, the Chatserot is the area where they were during the uprising of Korach. So he's criticizing them for supporting Korach in his rebellion. And here, the last one, V'di Zahav. D, Zahav, means die," Zahav. He's criticizing them for having used the abundance of gold that God had given them from Egypt. And what did they use the gold for? Golden calf. to make a golden calf so in the opening verse Moshe uh, Rabbeinu in the Torah already begins gently attacking the Jewish people's behavior and reprimanding them for their misbehavior but from this verse we already could learn how how you're supposed to uh, criticize. And before we get into the whole discussion, let me read you one more Rashi. The first Rashi says, (sighs) Because Moshe Rabbeinu is about to open up with words of criticism. And he's listing all the places where the Jewish people angered God. Therefore, he speaks in hints. And he only speaks with allusions. He doesn't say it explicitly. Why? Here come the four key words. Because Moshe Rabbeinu had too much respect for the Jewish people to just outright attack them. Mipnei. K'vodan Yisrael. Because of the fact that Moshe honored the Jewish people. Because he honored the Jewish people, that is the, re- that, that is the reason for this first Pesach of the, of the book of Devarim. Okay, so now we have a complete, a complete picture of Moshe Rabbeinu's example of how you're supposed to criticize. By the way, why is he saying it in the... The f- uh, female thing. Which one? It should say because kvodam. Yeah, for I don't Israel. know. I don't know. Maybe he was taught because he was he was shel shel uh, the ladies very the ladies the Israel Very interesting. Maybe it's very interesting because when you when you comes to like Torah Shabal Peh, there's a lot of there's a lot of switching back and forth between Hebrew and Aramaic. So I mean, this is a, this is a very simple answer. That kvodam is Hebrew, kvodan is how you would say it in Aramaic. Kvodan is male in Aramaic. And there's a lot of switching back and forth, what? sure? Yeah, um, but okay. Your, but your point is very well taken. Because the truth is, if there was anybody that was truly honorable in the Jewish people, it was the women, especially at this point. At this point, when you had a generation of women whose husbands were all gone, because the women rose to the occasion when the men did not. The women kept their faith when the men didn't. And that's why when, when a one whole generation of men died out in the desert, the women did not. But, yeah, so that's a very interesting point. for Adan Yisrael. So now let's go to this. So let's learn some lessons from Moshe. So first of all, what is motivating his criticism? That's a key question. And it's a question that every one of us has to ask ourselves before we open up our mouths to criticize. What is motivating the criticism? Because if anger is motivating the criticism, well, then speaking the criticism is simply giving in to the Yetzirah. You know, it's an interesting thing. On Shabbos, on Shabbos, you're not allowed to uh, do Creative work, and therefore, any kind of uh, any kind of action that is not creative, generally speaking, w- uh, uh, cre- uh, work that is not creative is not forbidden. So, for example, for example, by strict Torah law, ripping up a piece of paper for no reason is not forbidden, unless you t- unless you're destroying words. But um, just ripping up a piece of paper is not, not forbidden, even though by rabbinic law you're not allowed to it and you shouldn't tear things on Shabbos. But by strict law it's no big deal because uh, it's not creative, you're not, it's not constructive. But the Shulchan Aruch says that if you break dishes, if a person gets very angry and grabs a glass and whacks it against the wall and it breaks, which again, it's, it's not creative at all, And it's not constructive, it's very destructive. So the Rambam writes, and obviously he's taken from the Gemara, he just violated Shabbos. So everyone says, what do you mean violated Shabbos? He didn't do anything creative, he just broke a thing. So the answer is, he did. He soothed his Yetzirah. Sh'tiken et Yitzro. His Yetzirah, his evil inclination, was all in a tizzy, was all furious, And he soothed it by breaking something. By breaking something, the Yitzhahara was given an opportunity to express itself and to to, um, uh, blow off some steam. And so by breaking the cup, he fixed or he soothed and calmed his Yitzhahara. So there is this idea that a person, a good person, has a Yitzhahara, like all good people except the tzaddik. But the average good person is a good person with an evil inclination. And this evil inclination is a real creature. It's a real being. It's a Yetzir. It's a real expression of the Satan. And the Yetzir HaRai is angry. And if you give voice to the Yetzir HaRai, then you are just simply catering to the Yetzir HaRai. Catering to the Yetzir HaRai is something that every good Jew knows is unacceptable. Just to cater to the eight is is not nice it 's not nice, not nice to God who who 's testing you with the eight sahara it 's not nice to the person that you 're letting loose on because it 's the eight it 's not even nice to the eight Sahara because the eight doesn 't even mean it. it just this is the job it 's given by God to test you and you 're falling for it as if he wants you to fall for it and he doesn 't even want you to fall for it because he 's an angel of God and he wants you, he wants you to uh, withstand the, his temptation. So it's not nice to uh, indulge in the Yitzhahara's bad mood or the Yitzhahara's anger. So if a criticism is motivated by, the, by anger, it must not be spoken by a God-fearing person. First of all, because you are catering to the Yitzhahara. And secondly, because words that are spoken in anger, cannot, cannot help anybody. They will hurt. They may, they may fix the situation temporarily because it's like a restraining order, you know? You yell at your little child, you scare the wits out of him, and he stops his bad behavior for a moment, but the long-term trauma of, of, a, of an eight-year-old being the victim of a 40-year-old's Rage is much, much more profound than the temporary uh, peace of mind that you have because the kid got so terrified that he stopped his bad behavior. So, word, so if it, the motivation is anger, then, uh, then the words of criticism should simply not be spoken. If, what if the motivation is not anger, but the motivation is a desire to justify yourself, to justify your anger? You feel like, you know what? I would never do that. Why are you doing that if I would never do that? This is more common in regards to, let's say, husband and wife, or brothers and sisters, or friends, where a person yells at somebody else, not, not out of anger, but out of self-advancement. It's, in Hebrew we call it, chavero. a person makes himself feel better about himself by highlighting the other person's disgrace A, a perfect example of this is people who cannot stop repeating and repeating how awful a different another person's behavior is even let's say a rabbi who spends most of his time and most of his uh, shiur emphasizing the horror and the awful um, evil of a of any particular behavior or any particular sin, especially if it's low hanging fruit, you know, especially if it's an easy, popular thing to criticize, especially if it's trending. In, in popular culture to criticize a certain, a certain behavior, so a man or a woman who gets on the bandwagon and piles on and gets, you know, all heated up criticizing his behavior, very often it's mitchabed beklon chavero. The critique is correct. The behavior that he's criticizing is wrong. But the motivation for the criticism is not anger, because he's really not angry about it. He's not such a moral person that the immoral behavior angers him. Rather, what's motivating the criticism is that he makes him feel good about himself when when he can talk and talk about an evil that somebody else is doing that he would never do, or that he doesn't have any desire to do. Because of blind luck, because God didn't give him that particular Temptation, so therefore he doesn't have any desire to do that sin, so he feels good bashing people who do it, because it makes him feel like, wow, at least I'm not as bad as those people, it makes him feel good about himself. So putting other people down, or criticizing, putting somebody down in order to pick yourself up, that kind of criticism is obviously completely forbidden. It's forbidden. And again, it's not going to help the person that you're criticizing, because they'll be able to sense right away that you're just having a good time at their expense, or that you're feeling self-righteous at their expense, and that's not going to make them become a better person. If anything, it's going to make them become a worse person. So that, first of all, you can't speak that criticism because it's not going to help. And secondly, you can't speak of criticism because, once again, you are indulging in the Yetzirah and one of the lowest, lowest elements of the Yetzirah, which is self advancement at somebody else's expense, which is really quite, quite disgraceful. So, that, if that's the motivation of the criticism, then it really shouldn't be done. And those are two of the most common, unfortunately, two of the most common reasons why we criticize A, because we're furious and out of control or B, because it makes us feel good about ourselves Moshe Rabbeinu as we see from Rashi Moshe Rabbeinu's um, motivation to criticize the Jewish people was Moshe Rabbeinu's respect for the Jewish people Mepnei Kvodan Shor because he respected them Dashi says, because he respected them, he couched his criticism in gentle, in gentle terms. But because he criticized them, I'm sorry, because he respected them, he couched his criticism in gentle terms. In other words, he criticized them for the same reason that he's gentle with his criticism. He criticizes them out of love and respect. He loves them too much to just simply let them go wayward. And he respects them too much to think that they wouldn't be able to change if he speaks to them sincerely words that come from the heart. So we have another lesson here. You can only criticize somebody if you have a high opinion of them. If you don't have a high opinion of somebody, and you believe that your criticism is not even going to help, because the person is beyond hope, they're not going to change, then you might as well not say anything. If you don't have respect for the person that you're criticizing, then why are you criticizing them? If you don't believe that they are the kind of people with integrity, the kind of people with the right noble personality, that if someone tells them the truth, they will take it at face value and change, then why are you even talking to them? Then why are you even criticizing them? Chances are, if you don't believe it's going to help, then the reason you're criticizing is either because you're angry or because it's going to make you feel good. So Rashi says, Moshe Rabbeinu is criticizing the Jewish people because of how much he respects and honors the Jewish people. Because of his high opinion of the Jewish people, that's why he feels comfortable criticizing them. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to jab them. He doesn't want to hurt them unnecessarily so he couches it in gentle soft words but he feels like he must criticize them, they deserve it and that he feels like if, if I was in their shoes, I would want somebody to tell me the truth as the Rebbe says in Hayom Yom, the Rebbe writes in one of the days of Hayom Yom Ehov et Habikoret you should cherish criticism ki I can't remember the, the exact words. Cherish criticism because it will place you on the true heights. If you, if you are surrounded by people that will never criticize you, that will never critique you, that will never correct you, then you'll then you will never grow. And you'll be able to look back on your life and you will be able to look and see who it is that, that perhaps should have corrected you when you needed to be corrected and didn't and because of that you remain the same person for 50, 60, 70 years with all the flaws and all the mistakes. How do you distinguish between people that criticize to put a person down or to criticize as positive criticism? Yeah, well, the only way you can distinguish is if you are the critic. If you are the receiver of the criticism... Receiver? If you are the receiver, then then between you and me, it doesn't matter. Because it's your life that's at stake. Take the criticism and grow from it. But of course, if somebody is hurting you and the the criticism is too hurtful, etc., then you'll know that uh, you can't handle it and you can ask them to stop. But for your own good, for my own good... If somebody criticizes me, it's not worth my time or my welfare to try and analyze the psychology of why they're criticizing, because at the end of the day, it's my opportunity to grow from the criticism and become a better, higher person. So there was a woman, there is a woman, I'm sorry, What? there is a woman, her name is Chaya, she's the wife of one of the leading Chabad rabbis in Brooklyn, and Crown Heights. And she recently told the story of how she became a Chabadnik. She was a religious woman in the 40s in New York. And she got, became attracted to Chabad. Her father was not a Chabadnik. And her father was upset about her connection to Chabad. And didn't want her to become a Chabad. And her father belonged to a community that was far less happy-go-lucky, far less open-minded than Chabad. And much more rigid than Chabad. And her father believed with all of his heart. And she says her father was a good man. And she has only respect and love for him. But she says, my father believed with, his, with his, all his heart that the Chabad, the Chabad way was not our way. And it was not the right way. And that the right way is their way, which was very rigid and very um, insular, you know, very defensive. And uh, not, as, uh, not as laid back as Chabad And very interesting, she says that her father and her teachers used to say that the problem with being laid back is that you talk too much. Hear this? The problem with being laid back, the problem with Chabad or Hasidim is that because they're laid back, because they're not tense and rigid, they simply talk too much. Because they're relaxed. And when you talk too much, you inevitably speak Lashon hara. When people talk too much, they inevitably, in, the, in between all of their chatter, they speak, Lashon they speak about this one or that one. Did you hear what happened? Did you hear this? Did you hear that? So their solution to that is, don't talk. Don't be, a, don't chatter. Don't talk to people. Don't have a bringings. There is an opinion that says that this is a very, a very wrong path. Don't schmooze not right. You're going to end up speaking Lashon Hara. So this woman, this young woman, Chaya, you can imagine that she was good to Mished. She was very mixed up. She didn't know what's the right path. Her father and her teachers are telling her very emphatically that the uh, uptight, rigid way is the the right path. Because it will protect you from Lashon Hara. And Chabad is preaching this other way which resonates with her so much more. So she had a meeting with the Debe. And she laid out all of her confusion to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe told her that the reason that Chabad doesn't believe in this policy of silence, of of keeping quiet, the reason why Chabad does believe in people talking and schmoozing, even though it may be true that sometimes you drift into Lashon Hara, and that is not acceptable, and you have to be on the watch for that, but yet, you must, you must be able to schmooze with your friends. And why must you be able to schmooze with your friends? Because a person who doesn't talk openly and honestly and, and frankly with friends never hears the truth about themselves. In other words, if you are not part of a chavre, if you are not part of a chavre, if you only have a teacher and a father, then you'll never hear... From a friend, what only a friend can tell a friend, and that's crucial. And so the Rebbe said, "I respect your father's derech and your rabbi's derech, but please understand that our derech, our way, is designed intentionally. It's not just a uh, laxy, chilled and who you know reckless and careless. It's intentional that people should." talk to each other, and people should have brain with each other, and people should schmooze with each other, because that will place you at the true heights, when you talk to each other honestly, and openly, and you try to help each other, and you try to encourage one another, to improve and become better, and if it really is friendly, and intimate, and close, then friends tell friends, what nobody else could tell them, and it helps them, to correct their 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 mistaken uh, habits, it helps them to fix their bad habits, and it helps them to become better people. So, Moshe Rabbeinu says to himself, if I made these mistakes that the yidn made, I would very much appreciate if somebody would set me straight. Well then, I'm going to do that which I would love to be done to myself, I'm going to set them straight. And I'm going to set them straight because I know that if I do, they will listen to me, and, and I want to do that for them. But it, but it rises out of respect. And then, because the criticism comes out of respect, Moshe does everything that he can to say the criticism in a way that will not hurt. And here, Sasi, perhaps, you can have a real defining feature which distinguishes between loving criticism and unloving criticism and that is that unloving criticism hurts unnecessarily the same critique could have been said without the hurtful word or without the hurtful tone or without the sneer the exact same message could have been conveyed in a gentle sweet way and you would have gotten the message the fact that the person speaks it in a way that hurts you, and insults you, and walks all over you, is an indication that the criticism is not really designed to help you, but rather it was designed to hurt you. And why would somebody want to hurt you? Either because they're angry, and they're not thinking, so they're giving into their anger, which is not good, or because by hurting you, it makes them feel better about themselves. But, but one thing is 100% clear, and we have to be bloody honest with ourselves with this. It doesn't help anybody to analyze other people's behavior. Psychologists today are making millions of dollars helping people analyze other people's behavior, and not helping the people at all. Rather, let me help you understand why you know how, how, what your wife is doing to you. Let me help you understand what your mother did to you. Let me help you understand how your children are hurting you. Everybody walks away with a fresh, new perspective and a new appreciation for why they hate everybody in their life. Their psychologist makes a lot of money and the person becomes more and more miserable. So it doesn't help anyone really, honestly, if we love each other, we should say this to each other. It doesn't help anyone to to analyze why or how someone is criticizing me the real gibor a real hero is a person who takes whatever comes his way and uses it as the famous uh, famous parable that what well, do you throw stones at me if you throw rocks at me and i'll make a collection and i'll use it and i'll build a bet knesset ezro ha gibor ha kovesh et yitzro. ha kovesh et yitzro. kovesh means lo Horeg et yitzro, not that he kills his yitzhara, but he captures him. And what do you do with a captive? Put him to work. So your Yetzirah is screaming and shouting, No, no, look, that person insulted me. That person offended me. Okay, you take your v'ata <laughs> you conquer him, you make him your slave, and you use him to become a better person. So you, re, you redirect you redirect the hurt feelings into a positive channel, channel it into a positive energy to really change the way you behave and the way you live. So Moshe Rabbeinu is the Chacha, the Chacha, the real true wise person who knows how to help somebody else. It's not even a question of a Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to hurt them. Moshe Rabbeinu would never want to hurt the Jewish people. He wants to help them, but wanting to help is only half the battle. You know, like a person who, person who says a, a thoughtless word of criticism and it hurts so much and they really didn't mean to hurt you, but it was thoughtless. They weren't giving any thought to how would be the best way to say this or how would be the most constructive way to go about this. It just thoughtless, just, you know, Zorkim Milim. You know, you throw words and you say, wow. and then you get very upset and then they get upset. Why did you get upset? And you say, because you hurt me so bad. They say, Why did I didn't mean to hurt you. Moshe Rabbeinu understands and is teaching us to hurt a person intentionally with your words, out of the question. Forget about it. Forget about it. But to hurt a person unintentionally with your words is also unacceptable. You know, as, uh, <laughs> I heard once that if I bring in somebody said something really, really nice. It says Bilam, you remember Bilam, the guy that was riding his donkey, and the angel was in front of the donkey, and, and the, angels, the, the donkey saw the angel, but Bilam didn't see the angel. And because the angel was blocking the road, the donkey moved over to the side, and the, Bilam got mad at the donkey and he starts hitting it. So the donkey says to Bilam, Why are you hitting me? And Bilam says, Well, why are you driving me crazy? Why don't you go forward? And then the angel appears to Bilam. And the angel says to Bilam, "You're a terrible man. You're hitting your donkey. You're beating up your donkey. Your donkey was just afraid because I was blocking the road." So Bilam says to the, to the Malach, "Lo Yadati, I didn't know." So, so this rabbi said, "If you want to sum up Bilam in two words, here you have Bilam's Bilam's uh, sisma, Bilam's uh, what do you call it? slogan." Loya Dati. I didn't know. So he beats up on the Jews, and God says to him, "What are you doing? These are my chosen people." Oh, Loyadati. I didn't know. He beats up on a donkey, and he says, "What are you doing? I was I was blocking the road." Oh, lo Dati. Bilam used this idea of lo I didn't know. I didn't know. Well, maybe either you should have known, because after all, you are a novi, right? You pride yourself. Bilam prided himself. I'm being a prophet, so you should have been able to see a, a, an angel. If a donkey could see it, how come you couldn't see it, first of all? So you, I didn't know is not an excuse. And secondly, if you didn't know, then why are you erring on the side of abuse? If you don't know, then don't hit. You know, your donkey goes over to the side, and you're like perplexed. Why would the donkey do this? The road is open. The donkey's moving over to the side. Why would my donkey do this? So you don't know why the donkey is doing it. So what do you do? You hit the donkey. Then an angel says, I was blocking it. That's why your donkey was doing it. Oh, I didn't know. Okay, I take it back. Well, if you didn't know, why were you hitting the donkey? If you didn't know, and you had to make a decision based on doubt, just, then you always default to violence. So when a person says something hurtful, when I criticize somebody with not too much thought, I didn't mean to hurt them. I just, you know, I just throw a word. And they get hurt. And then, and then I see that they're hurt, and I say, what happened? And they say, well, you don't realize how you hurt me? And I say, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know those words would hurt you. If you didn't know, then why would you err on the side of criticism? If you didn't know, <laughs> then, then shut your mouth. I mean, if you don't know, then keep your mouth closed. If you don't know, err on the side of caution. Somebody once asked the Rebbe about spaking children. So the Rebbe said, spanking children is an age-old tradition. You can't say that all the people that ever spanked people are, children are bad, but one thing is for sure. You need to be clear as day. You need to be 100% absolutely, positively certain that the child needs a spanking. If you ever have a, any kind of a doubt, that the child maybe needs a hug and not a spanking, Always err on the side of a hug. Why? Well, so first of all, it seems very obvious. Why? Because, because hugging is nice and spanking is, is sad. But the Rebbe said because if you hug a person by accident, you did a mitzvah. If you spank a person who didn't need a spanking, you did a terrible sin. You hurt somebody. The Rebbe's wife, Rebbe Zechai Mushka, this is a story that has been a legend in Chabad for a long time. Rebbe Zechai Mushka was with her husband, the Rebbe, in, in France during the Nazi invasion. And there was a bombardment. And she pushed the person out of the way of some flying metal. Shrapnel or chavayz She, While the you know, whole crowd was running away from a bombardment, and she saw that the guy in front of her was literally in the path of some flying metal, she pushed him down, and, and saved him. And many years later, many years later, when she was already the lubavitcher Ebitson, she confided to somebody that she's never forgiven herself for pushing the guy. She's never forgiven herself for pushing the man. And even though by pushing him she saved his life, she said, but I pushed the person. So... But now that Ebitson was not a person who lived with guilt. It wasn't like debilitating. On the contrary, it's an expression of utter human dignity. That to push a person, to hurt a person, is unacceptable, period. If you have to hurt a person in order to help them, then you do. But it's not like you give yourself license and say, Oh, okay, no big deal, I hurt them. It was just to help them. No, you can never forgive yourself for having hurt somebody. And what's so marvelous about this story is that, unfortunately, we know so many people, and we are, unfortunately, sometimes, the kinds of people who are the opposite. We give ourselves excuse for every bad thing that we ever did. Anytime we ever hurt anybody, we always say to ourselves, well, he hurt me first, or I didn't mean to do it, or it was for his good, or whatever it is. We always give ourselves excuse for hurting people. That Rebetzin wouldn't give herself an excuse for hurting somebody, even when she meant it for the loftiest possible human reason. So the idea that you can hurt people in your efforts, let's say, to do something good. Well, you know what, there's collateral damage and people are going to get hurt. No, there's no such thing as giving yourself an excuse. Even if you are right, even if you were justified, then in God's eyes you were justified. That doesn't mean that you get to quickly forgive yourself for causing somebody pain. So Moshe Rabbeinu knew this and felt this deeply. And he criticizes in a way that causes the very, very, very least amount of pain, while at the same time causing the very, very maximum amount of effectiveness. So what you have here is a few ingredients. First of all, if you're going to criticize somebody, say it once. Maybe, maybe, maybe you need to say it again. But don't repeat the same criticism over and over and over again. People do not suffer from amnesia. And if your words, if you carefully weighed your words of criticism, and you you had uh, analyzed yourself, and you concluded that the words are coming out of love and respect, and you chose your words carefully, and you said them gently, and they didn't work, There's usually not any reason in the world to say it again. The person remembers what you said. And we see this in particular in regards to parents and their children. That when a child has been raised by you. For 10, 15, 20 years. And yet the child persists. With a particular let's say bad behavior or bad habit. The child was already raised by you. You already raised the kid. You already gave him all the criticism that parents are supposed to give their kid. Now is the time to stop criticizing. Now is the time perhaps to educate, to inspire, to make them feel loved. But criticism, the time is over, man. It doesn't help to, crit- to criticize over and over and over again. Because first of all, you keep on hurting the person. And secondly, eventually they become deaf to what you're saying anyway. It's like an amateur masseuse. Who keeps on massaging the same spot over and over and over again, eventually not only it doesn't feel good, it doesn't feel like anything it's just annoying. So if you, can, if you can direct your criticism expertly and lovingly and the timing should be right and the place should be right, and everything should be set up for this criticism to have maximum impact, then by all means out of love and respect for the person. Open your mouth and tell them what they need to hear. But don't repeat it over and over again. Don't create a hostile environment where every time they see you, all they remember is the criticism that you had to say about them. So try to try to make sure that, they, that you don't become an embodiment of the criticism. Try so hard that the criticism shouldn't hurt needlessly. It could be an intellectual criticism. It doesn't have to be an emotional outburst. And last but not least... Make sure that it's coming from a place of respect, a place that believes very, very deeply in the other person's um, integrity, in the other person's quality, and the belief that they have the virtue of, uh, of the personality that if they hear what you're saying and you say it respectfully, they will change, and therefore you have no right to withhold the criticism. And You say it gently and softly, it'll be effective, and they will thank you forever. And I think that if we take 60 seconds... And think about one person in our life who once told us a word of criticism out of love, we could point, each one of us, not that, we, not that we should right now, but each one of us could point to a turning point in our life where someone good, someone noble corrected us and put us on a better path and how we are eternally grateful to that person because of the way they did it and because of the fact that they did it. So, Moshe Rabbeinu is the best example, and we take our, our inspiration from him. Rabbi. Yes.